Joshua 10 this morning. And a question for you, do you believe in miracles? Do you believe in miracles? Some of you think it's a miracle that I finally shaved that beard. (laughs) It is a more serious question than that. And it is a timely question coming on the heels of Easter Sunday last week. Celebrating the resurrection of Jesus from the dead on the third day. And we've already seen, even in our time in Joshua, some pretty impressive miracles. How God's people crossed the Jordan River. How the walls of Jericho came a-tumbling down. And our text this morning has one of the Bible's more famous miracles. Many of your English translations likely use it in the, the little heading or the title that it, that it gives there. And it is a pretty impressive miracle. There's no doubt about it. But it's not the only miracle in, in the passage. And after having lived with this passage for the week, in my opinion, I don't even think it's the biggest miracle. And so I want to show you this morning just how chock full of miracles this passage is and I'm praying that God would give us the grace and the faith necessary to believe in miracles and so I want to get right to it so if you're able would you please stand for the reading of God's word Joshua 10 verses 1 through 15 As soon as Adoni Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly. Because Gibeon was a great city like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai and all its men were, were warriors. So Adoni Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoam, king of Hebron, to Piram, king of Jarmuth, to Japhia, king of Lachish, and to Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal, and the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon, and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Haran, and struck them as far as Azekah and Makeda. And as they fled before Israel, 
While they were going down the ascent of Beth Haran, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Son, stand still at Gibeon and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. So Joshua returned, and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. And may God add his blessing to the reading, to the teaching of his inerrant, inspired, infallible, and authoritative word. Let's pray to God. Lord, we need your help to understand what's in this passage. We need your help to see how it fits into your grand story of redemption accomplished by the Lord Jesus. We need your faith and your grace at work in our hearts if indeed we are to believe in miracles. And we need to. So help us. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Please be seated. So I think there are a lot of miracles here. And so I've grouped them under four headings. You've got an outline in your worship folder. The first miracle that I see here is the miracle of a changed heart. And, and it's actually seen by way of negative example. Right? That is, we see folks in this passage who don't have changed hearts. And I think that that can help us be reminded of what a miracle it is for the heart to be changed in the first place. All right, let, me, let me flesh that out because that may seem like going in the back door with this negative example. Verses 1 through 5, the king of Jerusalem together with these other kings, they're scared to death. They are scared to death. Word has continued to travel about what God is doing to help his people and what God is doing to destroy the enemies of his people. And it ain't good news for these kings. They are afraid. Verse 2 says that he, the king of Jerusalem, slash they, all of the kings, feared greatly. Now, fear can do a lot of things for you. But I think that fear will often drive you to one of two places. Right? It's either going to drive you to rebellion and anger against God, or it's going to drive you to submission to God. Fear will either have us proudly and arrogantly shaking our fist at God, or in humility, bending our knee and, and bowing before him. And we've seen examples of both so far in Joshua. Right? We've seen Rahab. We've seen the Gibeonites scared to death 
fearing for their lives, but in humility, bending the knee, submitting to the Lord, seeking for a way to surrender to Him. Those are kind of the exceptions, though. We've seen much more of of what we see here with these kings, right? They're forging an alliance. They're gathering themselves together and all their mighty men. They're seeking to make war against Gibeon, even though they know that Gibeon's already struck a deal with God's people. But they're in rebellion, and it is madness. It is madness. It reminds me so much of Psalm 2. It's one of my favorite psalms. And it starts out, the the first two verses, there they are. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. Is that not what they've done here? Against the Lord and against His anointed. It's just folly, y'all. It's a bad idea. But it's what fear often drives us to do. It's folly to fight against the Lord. He will always win. Always. Now, the important question here is what makes the difference? What, what made Rahab and the Gibeonites do what they did versus what the king of Jerusalem and his cohorts are doing? What what causes some to shake a fist and others to bend a knee? Is it just a matter of intelligence? The smart ones figure it out, say, hey, this is a good idea, but this is a stupid idea. So we're going to do this. No, no. It's not that. Is it a matter of morality? Is it the the people who are just basically good anyway, they tend to be the ones who bend the knee? No. No such reason like that exists to account for the difference. The difference is supernatural. The difference between shaking your fist in anger and rebellion against God and and bowing your knee in humility and seeking for a way to surrender, the difference is a miracle, right? That any would bend the knee is astonishing. That any single person would ever bend the knee and would submit and would seek to surrender to God is a, is a miracle because Scripture tells us that the default of every human heart is rebellion. Every heart, every time. And so for there to be any submission at all takes a mighty working of a miracle of God. Changing the heart, giving it a desire to submit that it never had before. Friends, when you are afraid, when you are facing a fearful situation, and and isn't life full of them? 
if in that moment there is any inclination at all in your heart to submit to the Lord, to submit to His will, to His ways, to His plan, if there's even the tiniest inclination in your heart to do that, y'all, that's evidence of a miracle. That's evidence of a miracle that has taken place. So I ask you this morning, do you believe in the miracle of a changed heart? Secondly, do you believe in the miracle that is the gift of faith? God gives faith to his people, and this is a miracle. This is a miracle, and it's a miracle in two particular ways, I think, as seen in this passage. The first of which is how he goes about giving it to us. And what that gift leads us to when he does give it. So, so, so the how first. How does God go about giving us the gift of faith? Quite frankly, it's often not glamorous. It's often not with fireworks, though sometimes it can be. It doesn't often come accompanied with writing on the wall, though it can. Much more often and much more likely it's going to come through the mundane and through the monotonous. Now what do I mean by that? In our passage today, verse 8. Three words. Lord said to Joshua, do not fear. That's it. Haven't we, haven't we heard this before? Right? Chapter 8, verse 1 started, do not fear. The whole book started in chapter 1 with this long section on don't fear, don't be afraid, be strong. Have courage, right? It's almost as if God just keeps saying the same thing over and over. Is he, is he a broken record? Now, let me be honest with you about something. Sometimes I struggle with this. Sometimes I struggle and I wrestle with the fact that we come in here week after week after week doing and saying and hearing the same things. In our worship, we're coming week after week being reminded of, of who God is in His holiness, in His majesty, in His splendor. Week after week we come and we're reminded that we're not God. That we're not holy. That we're not majestic. That we're not all-powerful or all-knowing. But that in fact we're sinful and needy. Every single week we're going to get a reminder of that. We're going to be confessing that 
to God. Every single week we're going to be reminded of how God has met us in our neediness in the gospel. How he wants to change us from the inside out by that gospel. How he wants to make us ambassadors and messengers of that very gospel in order to bless those around us. It's the same thing over and over, week after week. And sometimes I crave something new. A a, a new way to say it, some fireworks perhaps. Something new and novel. But that's not how God works. He's not telling Joshua and company something new about himself that they didn't know. He's not giving them some new way to be successful or faithful. He's reminding them once again of his presence, of his faithfulness, of his provision, of his power. And it's that simple often monotonous, perhaps mundane reminder. It's that simple reminder that creates faith in us. It's the being reminded again and again of who He is and what He's done and what He's promised to do that stirs belief inside our hearts. Joshua didn't need... We don't need some earth-shattering new knowledge about God that we previously did not know. It's not like we're supposed to come in here week after week and leave saying, oh my gosh, I didn't know that. If, if only I had known that last week. No. We, we come in week after week because we need... We need the same old truths, freshly reminded, freshly applied. Joshua gets yet another reminder, verse 8 of our text, do not fear. I'm giving them into your hands. We've heard that, those exact words before already. Here comes this reminder again in verse 8. And then what happens in verse 9? He takes off. He's gone. He's gotten this reminder, and they march all night, and they sneak up on him and surprise him. He's reminded once again of who God is, what he's promised to do, and he's ready for action. He's prepared, and he's ready to go. And so that gets us to the second part. The first part is, is how God often goes about giving us faith. And the second part is what that, faith, what that gift of faith leads us to is bold, courageous action. It led Joshua to this sudden attack of his enemy. And it also leads Joshua to make this outrageous request of the sun and the moon. 
Stop what you're doing, sun and moon. Y'all, that's brazen. In the sight of all these people, Joshua speaks directly to the heavenly bodies and commands them to cease from their ordinary function. Is that even appropriate? Should he be doing that? How does Joshua even know that that's what the Lord's will is? Verse 12, I think, is helpful. There's a couple of things here. The first is, is look at the order of this in verse 12. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day, and then he said in the sight of Israel, Son, stand still. So that's helpful to me. Who's he speaking to first? He's speaking to the Lord. He's seeking the Lord's counsel. He's getting before the face of God. He's speaking to the Lord. And then he's telling the sun and the moon what to do. So I think that order is helpful. But note too here, just the very act of speaking to God. is of itself an act of faith. To call out to Him means that you believe that He exists, which is the very definition, definition of what faith is. Right? Hebrews 11.6, right? without faith it's impossible to please God. Right? You've got to believe that He exists. Here's the second thing about this. I, I do think that since God has given Joshua this gift of faith, by way of monotonous reminder number 74, right? he's given faith to him, it's definitely appropriate that he should tell the sun and the moon what to do. Right? That's the kind of faith that Jesus taught, right? Jesus said... If you have faith and do not doubt, say to this mountain, what? Into the sea with you. Faith like that is a miraculous gift. Thirdly, uh, the miracle of God's provision and God's fighting for His people. So, one of the often repeated, maybe it's even monotonous things in Joshua, is that the Lord will fight for his people. Right? Tells him over and over, I will fight for you. The battle's mine. I will fight for you. He will be the one to defeat our enemies. He will be the one to give us the land that we are to go in and possess. Again and again, for the good of his people, he provides for their every need, every battle, every struggle. We see this vividly in verses 10 and 11. Look at those. Uh, and the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow, chased them. Verse 11, and as they fled, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven. 
You know, as I was as I was reading this week along with you, with our little Trinity Together plan, I had another one of those aha connecting the dots moments because I'd been in this passage in Joshua, and then when it came in Exodus 23, I was like, oh, I've heard this before. Where is this from? Exodus 23:27. I forget what day that was. Earlier in the week, um, I will send my terror before you, and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. So here in Joshua 10 is God's faithful fulfillment of that promise right there in Exodus 23 that we happen to read about this week. Y'all, He's faithful. He is faithful to fight for His people, to continue providing for His people. And part of the miracle of His faithfulness is that He keeps on doing it despite our faithlessness. Despite our faltering and fumbling and stumbling. Despite the 40 years of wilderness wandering that's still to come between this promise and the fulfillment of that promise, he's faithful. He sends the chaos, he hurls the stones with amazing accuracy. His, his provision is thorough. And if you'll notice, it, it kind of seems, gosh, that doesn't even seem fair. They're already retreating. They've already, I guess, conceded defeat. They're running away, and that's when the stones start being hurled from heaven. Y'all, but it, it's both an act of God's judgment, because we've got to remember these people were shaking the fist. They were rebelling against God for more than 400 years. It's not as if God hadn't been patient and, and given some opportunity here. So it is an act of judgment, but it's also an act of protection for his people. Yes, they are retreating, but wouldn't they likely just lick their wounds and regroup and come back for another swipe later? And so to protect his people, he wipes them out. Chaos. Stones hurled from heaven. And yes, the sun standing still that God grants this request and causes the natural order of things to pause. To give ample time for a thorough defeat of their enemies. The Lord fights for His people. He thoroughly defeats our enemies. And again, I just think this is perfect timing on the heels of last week and the miracle of the resurrection because what is the resurrection if it is not proof that our enemies have been defeated? Sin and death have been defeated and the resurrection proves it. The resurrection is proof that God the Father accepted the death of His Son. It's payment for our sins and Him leaving the grave on the third day breaks the power of death. Praise be to our risen Christ who has fought for us. Final miracle, number four, is the miracle that God hears. Perhaps this is our biggest miracle of the passage. But it isn't how the passage normally, I don't think any of our translations have this passage titled 
God hears, right? Right, the sun standing still, still gets all the glory. But even the text itself seems to point elsewhere as to what the big deal is. Look at verse 14. There has been no day like it before or since when the sun stood still. No, that's not the next thing. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man. Now, I will confess to you right off the bat, I don't exactly know what to do with the, with the before or since. Because I can pretty quickly think of some other places where the Lord listened. and So I, it seems a little exaggerated to me. I wrestled with it all week long. Got no answer for you. Um, so you win some, you lose some. But here's the thing. When God heeded, some of your translations might say obeyed the voice of a man uh, or listened or hearkened unto. And and the reason the translations are are picking a lot of different things here is because the Hebrew word has some complexity to it. And it is both the idea of hearing but also of doing something as a result of what you've heard. Right? It's what I'm desperate for my children to do. To both hear and do something based on what you've heard. Because I'm quite sure many, many times that sound waves have bounced off of an eardrum, but that's about the extent of it. The Hebrew word here, Shema, you may have even heard before, Scripture talks, speaks of the great Shema, which is Deuteronomy 6. And it's what Jesus quotes when he's asked, what's the greatest commandment? This is where Jesus goes. He says, hear Shema, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. All right? so, so there's the first part. Right? There's the hearing. But then there's something after the hearing. There's the the result of having heard that. Then what? Verse 5, you shall love the Lord your God, heart and soul and might. So God's people are to hear. They are to shema. But the Lord himself is also sometimes the subject of this verb. Right? When, When God appears to Moses in the burning bush, he tells Moses, he said, I have heard... I have shamad the groaning of my people. I've heard your distress. And what he does about that is he sends Moses to rescue his people from slavery in the great foreshadowing of an even greater Moses, the Lord Jesus, who would come to rescue his people from an even greater and worse, slavery. Friends, it is a miracle. It is a miracle that the God of the universe would stoop and condescend to hear and respond to His creatures. 
Not just to listen, but to listen and, and do something. This is a miracle, and it ought to do a couple of things for us. Number one, it ought to just rebuke our prayers. It ought to rebuke the flippancy of our prayers, of saying that we were talking to the big guy upstairs. This ought to be a rebuke to that. But it also ought to be a rebuke to the faithlessness of our prayers. That we come to Him because we believe He exists, but we're not too expectant that He's going to both hear and do something about it. We're flippant. We're faithless. The other thing this ought to do for us that He hears is clearly just point us back to Christ. What or who could be a bigger example, a, a bigger evidence of the fact that the Lord hears, that He heard, that He sent, because He loves His only Son. It's a tremendous miracle and we need to pray and I am praying that He will grant to us the grace and the faith necessary to believe in these miracles. Let's pray. God, would You bless us again even this morning in this moment with a miracle. If we are to believe, if we are to have any inkling at all of bending our knee rather than shaking our fist, if we are to believe that You both hear and do, if we are to believe that You will continue to be faithful and You will continue to provide for us, we need a miracle. Grant it even now. Even now we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please stand and let's sing in response.